Let's just pray and ask God to speak to us as we get into his word. Father, we thank you this morning that um, your word is living and, and active. We thank you that we can um, hear from you every time that we open this book. And, and we pray that you would speak again this morning. God, your, your people are listening and we want to hear from you. So we ask you to speak clearly. And God, I pray that, um, that you would do a work of transformation in our hearts this morning, that we would leave this place more in love with you and more excited to worship you than we came in. So God, we give ourselves to you, we give you this time, and we pray in your name, amen. So there's, there's moments in our lives that are, are big moments, right? And oftentimes, after we experience those big moments, we get asked a question, and the question is, well, now what? Now what, right? Um, high school graduation just happened for a lot of people, and if their, um, college, or if their high school graduation party was anything like mine, the question they got asked by almost every single person is, now what? What are you going to do next? Some people then go to college and graduate college, and then the question is, now what? What job are you going to take? Where are you going to go? What's next? Maybe you're entering into a dating relationship, and then there's that question, well, now what? Are we going to get engaged? And then perhaps you get engaged, and the question is, now what? When's, when's the wedding, right? When am I going to, um, when are we going to make those vows? When is the wedding going to happen? And then you get married, and then the question is, well, when are you going to have kids? And then you have a kid, and I'm learning the question is, well, when are you going to have another kid? Right? And there's always that, that now what? What is next? I think there's something in us that's always wondering what's next. In Colossians 2 this morning, God is going to show us some of the, the now what after we enter into relationship with Jesus. One way that we could phrase it is that, that he's going to help us answer the question, I became a Christian, now what? Now what? And this is an important message for, for all of us to hear. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's, it's important because God's going to show us some, some truth this morning about how we're going to be able to continue to grow in our relationship with Jesus. He's going to teach us that what it means to be unified, united with Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I would say this is an important message for you to consider because you need to know that, that there is blessing available to you, that there is life available to you if you will trust in Jesus. You can experience life in his name. So, you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, now what? Let's start in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. It says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Key truth I want us to, to grab from these verses is that our relationship with God begins and continues through faith. See, Paul is, is writing this letter to Christians in a town called Colossae. He knows that they have already turned from their sins and they have placed their faith in Jesus. He knows that they have received Christ Jesus as their Lord and so he's telling them, just as you received Christ, now walk with him. In the same way as you received him, continue in him. Rooted and built up, he says, and established in the faith. 
See, the message of, of Jesus is that we had sinned against God. We've sinned against God and our, our sin has separated us from God, but, but God has so much love for us that he sent Jesus to come and rescue us from our sins and to bring us into relationship with God forever. Jesus was born, he grew up, he um, began to, to teach the way of God, he performed miracles, he showed the power of God to the people who walked with him. And Jesus called people consistently, he said, repent and believe, turn away from sin and trust in me. And then Jesus was betrayed, he was turned over to the authorities where he was beaten and, and mocked and eventually put on a cross. And Jesus on that cross, he died for no sin of his own. It was our sin that he went to the cross to pay for. He was perfect and yet he died the death of a sinner and it was your sin and my sin that put him there. Jesus was buried three days in the tomb. On the third day, God rose him from the dead and Jesus began to, to appear to his followers and to others. And as he appeared to them, he taught them about the kingdom of God for 40 days. And then Jesus ascended up to heaven where he's now sitting at the right hand of God the Father and he's promised, I am coming back. And he could come back at any moment and he will make all things new. And according to the scriptures, according to what the Bible calls us to do, the only right response to that good news is to believe it. It's to turn away from sin and to place our faith in Jesus. That's what Jesus called us to do, repent and believe. Paul writes, it is by grace that you have been saved and it is through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. So that we can't brag about what we did to earn God's favor. Do you see that? The work of of Jesus that I just described that you just heard is all him. He did it. We did nothing to help Jesus accomplish his work and that's grace and he invites us now to turn from our sin and to trust in him. To trust that the work of Jesus is enough for our sins to be forgiven. All who trust in Jesus are brought into an eternal relationship with God. And now Peter is telling people who, or Paul is telling people who have previously made that decision to trust in Jesus. They've already turned from their sins and trusted in Jesus for salvation. He's telling them, your relationship with God is to be consistently marked by faith in Jesus. Just as you received him, continue to walk in him. Think of when you first learned how to ride a bike. When you were learning how to ride a bike, you learned the importance of two things primarily, and that's balance and movement, right? In order to stay upright on a bike, you needed balance. But something that helps balance a lot on a bike is movement, right? It's hard to, to stay upright on a bike that's not moving, even if your balance is amazing. And you started learning how to ride a bike by learning balance and movement, balance and movement, and then... If you still ride a bike, you still need balance and movement. As you get more comfortable, sure, you, you start to pedal faster and your movement increases and your balance get, gets better and you, you can go back and forth a little bit quicker, but the basics never change. The basics of riding a bike are balance and movement. 
And that's true of the Christian life as well. We enter into relationship with Jesus through repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And at first, it, it may seem like your, your faith is a lot like the balance on a bike. It's a bit shaky. It's a bit unknown. You're just trying to figure it out at the beginning. But then as you continue to walk with Jesus, your faith continues to grow and it becomes more natural and it becomes easier to trust in Jesus. And you begin to trust him for, for more and more. In the same way, repentance, something that, that perhaps at the beginning was like scary or, or confusing or something that, that you didn't like to do now becomes a joy because you're like, man, I get to confess my sin to Jesus and I get to be forgiven of that sin and I get to be freed to walk with him. See, just as we never graduate from balance and movement to ride a bike, we never graduate from repentance and faith in relationship with Jesus. Just as you continued, just as you received Jesus, so walk in him. And that, what does that posture, what does that position produce in us? Gratitude. When we live a life of repentance and faith, our lives are marked by gratitude. Why? Because repentance reminds us of our sin. It reminds us that that our sin had to be dealt with. Jesus had to die for our sin. But it also reminds us then that he joyfully went to the cross so that we could be in relationship with him forever. And that reality produces gratitude in our hearts because we thank God. God, thank you for rescuing me when I didn't deserve it. When I sinned against you, thank you for going to the cross for me. And and faith, it produces gratitude as well because it reminds us that the one who we trust in is eternally faithful. We're not hoping like maybe, maybe God will be with me. Maybe he'll help me. Maybe um, I'll be forgiven. No, faith in Jesus is full assurance that we are forgiven. That we have a faithful God who never fails, who makes promises and delivers on those promises every time. So you see how gratitude is the result as we trust Jesus. So you trust in Jesus, you would say, yeah, I trust in Jesus, now what? Well now, I invite your heart to rejoice as you believe that the same Jesus who saved you by grace through faith is the same Jesus who sustains you today and tomorrow And the next day, by grace, through faith. Look at verses 8 through 12. He says, See that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. A lot of interesting words in there. The truth I want us to grasp is that our relationship with God unites us with Jesus unites us with Jesus. See, in order to combat the, the philosophy and the, the deceit that was being spread in the town of Colossae, Paul tells the Christians about the unmatched power and the unmatched truth that is found in Jesus. He says, it is in Jesus that, that the fullness of deity, 
the entirety of God dwells. God, in his fullness, he says, dwells in Jesus. And then in the very next breath, he says, and you, talking to the Christians, have been filled in him. So Jesus is filled by God. We are filled by Jesus. Jesus is the head of all rule and all authority. So do you see the the depth of what Paul is teaching here? He's telling us that everyone who trusts in Jesus is united, brought together with Jesus, that we have been filled in him. Jesus is not some distant being. Jesus lives in us. We've been filled in him. And this is possible because our hearts have been changed. See, the old man, our, our old person who, who loved sin and who hated God has been put to death. That old person, he says, has been buried, dead, gone. The new person has been raised to life. See, Christians are, are no longer enemies of God, but we've become friends. We were dead in our sins and we've become alive together with Christ. Just as God raised Jesus from the dead, God has given us, all who trust in him, new life. And that new life means that we are now united. It's a life marked by union with Jesus. Our relationship with God unites us with Jesus. And as a result, our lives then can look like the life of Jesus. As many of you know, we have a, a four-month-old almost um, son. And one of, the, one of the debates that happens with everyone who, who meets him is um, who does he look like, right? Does he look like dad? Some people say he looks just like me. Some people say, actually, I think he looks just like Abigail. Um, some people say, I think he's a perfect mix of the two of you. And I said, that is so generous of you. Thank you. Um, recently, he went to the doctor, and he's measuring tall and skinny for his age. Surprise, surprise. But I got to thinking about that, and I was like, well, well, no wonder he looks like us, right? No wonder that there are, are similarities of us in him, because his very DNA comes from Abigail and from me, right? That's, he's made up of us, so, so there's no surprise that he looks like us. But I was thinking, I wonder how many people can look at my life and say, well, of course he's a Christian. Of course Christ lives in him. Because he has Christ living in him, of course he looks like Jesus. Have you seen how he talks to people and how he cares for people and and how he loves people? Of course Jesus lives in him. It, it, It makes perfect sense. See, just as our son looks the way he looks because we, in a way, live in him, you and I, should look like Jesus because he lives in us. I'm not talking about physically, but I'm talking about our words and our thoughts, our actions. See, the incredible truth that we just read that we see is that Jesus lives in us. We are united to Jesus. So I want to ask you a question that I have been asking myself. What is in Jesus that is not in you? What characteristics do you see in Jesus' life that you don't yet see in your own? Jesus forgives those who wrong him, do you? Jesus prays to the Father and he's consistently asking the Father for direction, do you? 
Jesus models this lifestyle of, of developing people and, and sending people out to use the gifts that he's given them to, to join God in his mission. Do you? Or if we ask it another way, um, what do you see in your life that you don't see in Jesus' life? Maybe you'd say, well, I see a lot of bitterness in my life because someone has wronged me and I haven't them, forgiven them. Does Jesus forgive? Or you choose to avoid people who are, are different than you. Does Jesus do that? I'm not asking these questions to, to condemn you, to, to make you feel like a, a terrible person, but rather to get you thinking. Because if it's true that we have been united with Jesus, then it should also be true that our lives look like his life. Certainly we're not going to perfectly represent him. We will sin. But if you're a Christian, you have the spirit of the living God living in you. And he desires and he's constantly working and wanting to work more and more to make you look more like Jesus every single day. So when I ask that, that question, like what is in Jesus that is not in me, I just want to invite you like confess those things to him. Be honest with him. God, I, I want to love like you love. Would you please help me? God, I have bitterness in my heart. I pray that you'd help me forgive because I know that you have forgiven me. It's his desire to work in you. He will help you. He's ready and he's willing to help you, but you need to know he lives in you. He wants to do that work. And this is the wisdom that, that truly changes us from the inside out. See, Paul is using this, this truth of, of union with Christ to combat the wisdom and the, the philosophy of the world. Because he understands that, that the wisdom of the world and the philosophy of the world is, in this context, it's, it's so focused on self. It's this wisdom that seeks to, to puff us up. But in contrast, the wisdom that God reveals shows us that we are secure and that we are confident because we have an incredibly wise an incredibly powerful God who lives in us. We don't have to be filled with the philosophy of the world because we've already been filled with Jesus. So let me encourage you to consider where in your life do you, do you feel the need to be filled up? What is it in your life that you're thinking, well, if I just had that, then I would be filled up, then I would be satisfied. Right? If, I, if I just graduated, I would have peace. If I just started dating, then I would feel valuable. If, if I only were to get married, then I would be loved. If I, if I just had children, then I would have purpose. If I could finally retire, then I would be able to rest. I want to invite you to give those thoughts to Jesus this morning and believe this truth. That because you have him, you have everything you need right now. You are united to Jesus by the powerful working of God. God has raised you up from the dead. Your sin is no longer defining you. You're fully known and you're fully loved by a God who gave his life so that he could live in you now and for all eternity. You are and you forever will be united with Jesus. This is the truth that we need to know. We don't have to to continue on this endless cycle of now what, now what, now what. Maybe the next thing will fill me because Jesus will fill you right 
now. He's ready to use you to then tell other people about how they too can be saved. Look at verses 13 through 15. It says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Our relationship with God, it means guaranteed victory. Guaranteed victory. See, before rejoicing in the great news of what Jesus did, though, verse 13 reminds us of who we are apart from him. Everyone who's not trusted in Jesus, according to this verse, is dead in their trespasses. Spiritually, they have no life. They're not in a relationship with God, and and they cannot do anything to bring themselves back to life. But that's not the end of the story. It goes on to show us that that all these people who were dead in their sins, that's you and, and that's me, God made alive with Christ. He did it by forgiving all of our sins. He did it by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. He did it by nailing that record of debt to the cross. And you're thinking, yeah, well, I thought it was Jesus who was nailed to the cross. And you just said that it was the record of debt that was nailed to the cross. Yes. See, when Jesus was nailed to that cross, the entire weight of sin was on him. My sin, your sin, every sin that we ever committed, the list of every sin that we ever committed was on him. Every time we lied and and stole and, and cheated, lusted and were proud and were rude, harsh, every single one of our sins was there with Jesus on the cross as he hung exposed and and vulnerable. But according to verse 15, it was not Jesus who was put to open shame in that moment. It was actually the rulers and the authorities of the world. How? Because every force of darkness thought that they had won the moment that Jesus was breathing his last breath. Right? This guy who had claimed, I'm the son of God and, and made all of these claims and did all of these miracles and, and seemed so powerful. He was now up on a cross. He was bleeding and he was suffocating, breathing his last breaths. And they thought we had finally done it. We beat him. But what the powers of darkness thought was their victory was actually the very moment that they were defeated. Because as Jesus was on the cross, he was taking every sin every power of darkness that that controlled humans apart from God upon himself. He was paying the penalty and the price for sin in that moment. He was openly showing darkness is real and darkness is powerful. But the power of Jesus is so much stronger than the power of darkness. He He was communicating that it's actually by my death that victory will come. It's through the death of Jesus that life comes to everyone who trusts in him. It's the death of Jesus that shows our sin can actually be put to death. We no longer have to live a life that's controlled by sin and darkness and shame and fear because the spirit of God lives in us and the light of Jesus always pushes back the darkness. God has made us alive 
by forgiving all of our sins. I heard the, the story of a couple who needed marriage counseling. And um, they, they sat down with this counselor and, and they began to talk. And as the conversation continued, the counselor realized, okay, there's a lot of pain here. There's a lot of bitterness here. And he said, I want to ask you, um, husband, I want you to say three nice things about your wife. And wife, I want you to say three nice things about your husband. And um, it took a little bit. But finally, the two individuals were able to say three nice things about one another. And then one of them pulled out a piece of paper from their pocket. And there were words all over this piece of paper, both sides. And the counselor asked, what's, what's on that piece of paper? And the person said, it's a list of everything that my spouse has done wrong in the last few years. And the counselor was like, oh boy, oh boy. Um, we're going to have to work through this in, in probably quite a few more sessions. Now, a free uh, piece of marriage advice that I will give to you that I don't, won't even charge you for is please, please, please do not keep a list of everything wrong that your spouse has done. It's not healthy. It's only going to produce bitterness. It's only going to produce anger. Please don't do that. That's free marriage advice. But I was thinking about that story and I was thinking, I wonder how many of us assume that God has a list just like that for us. Like if, if I were to go and sit down with God, that he would be able to quickly just pull out a list and say, here is everything that you have done wrong. Here's every time that you dishonored me, every time that you disobeyed me. And somehow, I then have to do enough good to maybe make that list smaller, to, to make it be a little bit less painful for me to hear that list. We struggle and then we battle. Am I, am I doing enough good to outweigh the bad? What's, what's my score? Can I ever be victorious? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, according to verses 13 and 14, that list no longer exists. It's gone. It used to exist. But it says that it was nailed to the cross of Jesus. It's been taken care of. The list erased, nailed to the cross, dead and gone. Your sins have been forgiven. The record of every debt that you owe God is gone. Or to use another scripture, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our sins from us. So we struggle with sin. We battle against sin by the power of the Holy Spirit of God who lives in us. And as we fight against sin, we must remember that the victory is guaranteed. See, when this life comes to an end and there's only one more now what question left to ask, it's this. My life on earth is over. Now what? And for all who trust in Jesus, that now what is an eternity with the living God. It's an eternity where our, our faith finally becomes sight. In eternity where our, our union with Christ that we get to, to experience here on earth becomes completely complete, right? Like we get to be united with him. We get to embrace him. We get to be with him forever. It's an eternity where, where our guaranteed victory is experienced and, and celebrated. An eternity where darkness is defeated so much so that there's not even a need for the sun because Christ himself is the light. It's an eternity where there's no more pain and no more struggle. There's no more heartbreak. There's no sickness and there certainly is no death. Old things pass away and all things have become new. It's an eternity where we are with our Savior 
and with one another, people from every tribe and every language and every nation around the throne of God singing, worthy are you, Jesus. Thank you for who you are and thank you for what you've done. See, that's the ultimate now what for the Christian. But until that day, let us remember that our relationship with God has begun and now continues through faith in Jesus. Until that day, let me remind you that that Jesus' work on the cross has made you united with him and that your victory is guaranteed. And I want to close by um, inviting those of you who perhaps have not trusted in Jesus to make that decision. See, all of this is available to you right now, to anyone who's listening. But as you said, if you have not trusted in Jesus, then your sins are before you because you've sinned against a perfect God and and that sin has separated you from him. You're dead in your sins, the Bible just told us. You can't work your way to him. You can't earn your way to him and that is why Jesus came. It's why he lived a sinless life. It's why he died on the cross for your sin. It's why he's offering you eternal life right now. He's ready to forgive your sin. He's ready to to nail that record of debts, that list of your sins to the cross so that you can be united with him and that you can experience victory with him for all eternity. In order to receive Jesus, you must turn away from sin, repentance, and you must believe. You must believe that, that Jesus died for your sin, that his death is enough, and that you can spend an eternity with him. So I just want to invite you to, even now, make that decision. You can pray to God with me and say, God, I know that I've sinned against you. I know that I'm dead in my sin. But I've heard this morning that you came to make me alive. So Jesus, I trust you. I place my faith in you. I turn away from my sin. And I believe that you, your death, and your resurrection is enough to save me. Fill me with your spirit in this moment. Convince me that you have forgiven my sins. Help me live a life that is united with you, that is full of faith and full of gratitude that you've defeated my sin and its penalty and brought me into relationship with you forever. And Father, I want to pray for for each and every one of us, God, and and ask you, would you solidify these truths in in our hearts, God, in my heart? For anyone who came in here thinking that you had this, this long list against them and wondering if there's any way that that list could be um, gone. God, I pray that they would know this truth this morning, that you have nailed it to the cross, that your blood paid for their sin. God, anyone who, who came in here discouraged, thinking, is there ever going to be victory in my life? God, I pray that you would remind their hearts right now that you are victorious and that you live in them. God, that sin no longer has a, has a stronghold in their lives because your spirit lives in them. God, help them experience your victory.